Just, like, assume everything he says is, like, a joke that didn't land well. It's the best dad thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Welcome to Same Here Man. I'm Marie Renee Katz. And I'm Lucille Mills. And we want you to know that we know what you did, and it's okay. We still love you. I like it. That's what I had. <laughs> um, just a, a heads up for my personal audio quality. I am currently on a medication that just makes it sound like I have a cold. So there's that. Some content notes. We will be talking about sex, the concept of purity, and we will be mentioning some implications this has for victims of sexual violence. But no acts of sexual violence will be recounted in this episode. So I just wanted to say that up front. Take care of yourselves. Feel free to not inhale this episode all in one go or skip it all together. We won't take it personally. And we will see you in the next one. I'm excited for the next one. Our next one's going to be a little Christmas bonus episode, so look forward to that. Yeah. This episode, however, is a continuation of our last episode on purity culture. That one was focused on the younger part of childhood. And so if you're just finding this, listen to that one first. And if you're listening to this years from now because you just discovered this podcast and you're faithfully going through the catalog, good for you, you loyal soul. We love you. <laughs> so where did we leave off last episode? Can you give like a little a little summary, like a little pop quiz? Yeah. So last episode, we talked about the concept of childhood innocence. Um, we talked about where it came from uh, and how it looks today. There are topics that are taboo, and perhaps the real reason why they're taboo is because adults feel uncomfortable talking about them, and not because children are, are not able to handle it. And then we left off with going through a mommy blog that was weirdly sexual. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Basically just talking about, you know, how... Her kids have to see people in their underwear sometimes, and that's like the worst thing ever. So that kind of <laughs> leads us into what we're talking about today, which is what, Lucille? We're going to go into what we know as purity culture, and we're going to talk about the extension of innocence from the last episode into purity culture. And I think the bridge is really wrapped up in the adult fear of young bodies morphing into bodies that could potentially reproduce. A lot of this panic in America in particular is tied up in the roots of the Christian church, both Catholic and Protestant, so we will be touching back to those foundations throughout these topics. First off, sexual development is a part of human anatomy and child development. So holding that fact, it's really weird how weird we make it. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to kind of pick that apart a little bit. It's perfectly normal. We're definitely going to be... Uh, wading through some of the discomfort that Marie and I have in using certain words or talking about certain topics. Um, and it goes back a lot farther than adults often want to wrestle with. This is a quote from the journal called Young Children by three ladies uh, named Koblinski, Atkinson, and Davis. And this quote says, sexual learning occurs in the early years. Between the ages of two and six, children become aware of genital differences between the sexes, mm. express curiosity about reproduction and birth, develop childhood romances, and engage in various types of sex play. Although many of us associate the topic of sex education with adolescence, young children ask more sex-related questions than do any children in any other age group. Mm. 
kids generally get curious about where babies come from around age three. Wow. Like, kids aren't dumb. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't grow into a body and not want to know all about it. You spend the most time with it than anything else. Yeah, and that makes me wonder if the reason why younger kids ask more questions about sex than older kids is because older kids have already learned that there is a stigma behind those kinds of questions. I'm curious, did the article yeah. say anything about that? Um, no, but I think we can infer that mm -hmm. from both how we have seen our friends raise children or how we were raised or how our friends were raised. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty common American puritanical concept that teenagers know about uh, sex being more awkward yeah. to talk about, especially around adults, because adults make it really awkward. That's true. Um, and think of any cringy birds and the bees talk that happens in any family TV show. You know? <laughs> like, it's a motif. I think we can we can infer that. Yeah. And it's funny that you would bring that up because the reason children are more apt to ask those questions is their innocence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they haven't been conditioned in whatever way is adults eventually morph them into to make adults more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so they're more open and able to ask those kinds of questions. I'm curious, yeah. Some parents deal with the embarrassment of sex by giving nicknames to private parts for children. <laughs> I'm curious if you had any of this happen. Um, <laughs> This particular journal strongly advises against it for very particular reasons. One, it puts children in a position to have to relearn those terms later, mm. and that instills shame for the real terms on a subconscious level. It suggests that it can also lead to embarrassment amongst their peers when they use their household nicknames for their body parts. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, did you have any... Weird nicknames, or did your family have weird nicknames for genitals? They probably did. I remember very clearly not knowing what to call my vagina. Mm. And at one point, it came up and, like, there was a backyard barbecue or something happening. And I was saying something hurt or something. I was very, very small. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad asking, like, where does it hurt? And I said, my front butt. <laughs> Oh, my and God. <laughs> everybody laughed at me, oh. and it was very embarrassing. Oh, no. And I didn't know what I did wrong or why it was funny because no one taught me. And I don't think they taught me then either. Oh. I just remember it being very embarrassing. So that's interesting that you – because, like, sometimes when kids say something wrong and then all the adults laugh, the kid's like, ha-ha, yes, I'm funny. I'm going to say it again. Yeah, I'm going to say it again and again. So that's yeah. interesting that you immediately went to embarrassment. Was it – did you feel like people were laughing at you like, haha, stupid kid or? No, I think it was more embarrassment. I've always had a penchant for like knowing the right thing. And mm. the fact that it was a part of my body and something that I spent a lot of time with mm. and I, I called it the wrong thing, that was embarrassing. Aww. It was embarrassing to not know a part of myself yeah. and for it to be funny. That makes sense. Are we allowed to laugh at it now that you're an adult? Oh, yeah. You can laugh at it. It's hilarious. Like, if a little kid said my front butt, that's fucking hilarious. That's it's honestly, fine. like, a really good way to describe it, though. It is, especially if you're a kid. Yeah. It looks the same. We had a couple weird ones. I feel like privates was the main one. Or, like, your pee-pee, which sounds yep. so stupid now that I'm saying yep. it. Yep, that's one that they advise against. Really? Why is that? For the same reason. I mean, is it more – is it – is it worse than any other nicknames? For no, any it's just the most common one I think that they, they listed because oh, that's one okay. that people use a lot. And they advised against it gotcha. in particular because when a kid has to relearn that, oh, it has a different name, there's like an inherent 
deeply embedded question of why didn't I learn the right thing first? It must have been wrong. Mm. The idea of being wrong Mm. about a part of your body doesn't instill confidence. That's interesting. I've never thought Mm -hmm. of it that way. My family also kind of adopted the Oprah Winfrey vajayjay term. (laughs) That's awful. So that's what we said like later on. Um, I think this is something that came from – I could be completely wrong, but I think this term came from Rob Deerdeck from like Robin Big and Fantasy Mm. Factory. But uh, my Jennies, as in genitals (laughs) – Oh, Jenny's a person's name. And my dad would do this thing where he'd go into Starbucks and he would say his name was Jenny so that the person would say Jenny. And then he'd, I don't know, think that was humorous because to him it meant genital. And I'm like, okay, you're literally four. (laughs) I will never figure out your father's sense of humor. (laughs) Me neither. So the next topic that is like going away from human development and like being curious is masturbation. Hmm. This is a hard topic for both of us for a wide variety of reasons, most of them stemming from family shame. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But that's, I think, why I wanted to talk about it, because it is very common, like beyond common, and it is a very natural development in maturation. It starts very Mm -hmm. young, and the ways that we view it have lifelong implications. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do my best to just talk about it and just say the word masturbation over and over again. (laughs) Fun fact, when I typed it into um, like, you know, like iPhone messages or whatever, it won't autocorrect until you like train it after a while. It's like one of the words it's like it doesn't want to acknowledge that it's real. Oh my gosh. So how many times do you have to type the word masturbate before your iPhone learns to autocorrect it when you spell it wrong? Uh, Way too fucking many. (laughs) So children discover masturbation very young. It is a natural part of learning about one's own body, and also it feels good. Children do it absentmindedly. This same journal article that I referenced earlier is actually targeted towards young educators. Like, that's the target audience. Let's keep that in mind. Like, this is a very young, very normal topic. It can be really difficult to deal with as an adult when we feel a sense of shame around the action. So maybe we can talk Mm -hmm. about some of the ways to teach children that will stop the cycle of passing on that shame. I think that's my hope for this particular topic. Yeah. With most child behaviors, acknowledgement is usually the best first step that you can use to correct behavior. So the challenge, the real challenge, is to react in ways that are neutral. And I'm going to read some passages with suggestions that are, that are, again, they're geared toward teachers of young children, but I found these points to be pretty relevant. And potentially something that could be useful strategies for parents too? Useful strategies and also like maybe better ways to frame our own relationships with our own bodies mm. because like we we know now that masturbation is actually really healthy. It helps to create better um, like confidence in yourself it releases a lot of dopamine it can be relaxing if you're stressed out or whatever um so here we go avoid negative responses adults should refrain from scolding or punishing children for engaging in masturbation and again this isn't like a classroom context so this is really liberal thinking (laughs) yeah responses like frowning or pulling the child's hands away from the genitals may communicate that these organs are bad or dirty Criticisms Hmm. or threats can lead children to develop unhealthy feelings of anxiety and guilt, which can persist throughout life. When I was talking about acknowledgement, I pulled that from this section. 
stress that there is a better time and place for masturbation. And again, this is about teaching children that like it is natural but not always appropriate. And that can be mm-hmm. a really hard line to teach, like you know, a, a kid whose logic hasn't fully formed. So it, it requires patience and repeating. Right. That was kind of going to be my next question is it, it must be incredibly difficult to explain to a kid that like, no, you shouldn't do that in class or in certain settings, you don't want to create shame around it. So yeah. it seems like a very fine line. It is. And, and I'm curious too, what are some of the outcomes for a child who has experienced shame over masturbating? Like why should we not create shame in children for this? I am going, I'm going to use that question as a springboard to the next topic. Hmm. I'm going to start from the wrong side of your question, if that's all right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because you asked what's the outcome of the shame. Mm-hmm. First, I'm going to answer what we believed as a society to be the outcome of the masturbation. This was the cause of the shame for a really long time. Because very conveniently, the view on masturbation and linking that to shame, all the way to saying like masturbation causes insanity, goes Mm -hmm. back to the same time we developed the concept of childhood innocence in the 19th century. Interesting. And I don't think that's just a coincidence. Right. So let's read some delightfully ridiculous quotes from an article in a 1987 issue of the journal Technology and Culture. And I will also link it in the show notes because it's delightful. There are some images that you guys should all look at. (laughs) They're terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. (laughs) So these are the ideas that Tissot, who is a Swiss physician had about masturbation. Those who masturbated would soon have a cloudiness of ideas, suffer a decay of their bodily power, experience acute pains in their head, be afflicted with pimples on their face, and eventually lose their power of generation or fertility. Females were likely to be the subject of hysterical fits, violent cramps, ulceration of the matrix, whatever the fuck that is, and what? uterine tremors. <laughs> oh my gosh. That all just sounds so fake. Wait, so I missed the beginning of this quote. Was this saying this is what will happen to you if you masturbate? Yep. <laughs> yep. These are all direct threats from someone who is a practicing doctor. The next quote is also the dangers of masturbation, but this quote is written by none other than our favorite cereal maker, John Harvey Kellogg. What? That Kellogg. This is the very long list of outcomes from masturbation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. General debility. (laughs) Consumption-like symptoms. What does that even mean? I don't even know. (laughs) Premature and defective development, sudden changes in disposition, lassitude, sleeplessness, Failure of mental capacity, fickleness, <laughs> untrustworthiness. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so long. Love of, <laughs> love of solitude, um, me, bashfulness, <laughs> unnatural boldness. Okay, so we're bashful, right? but we also are unnaturally bold. Right? Got it. It's um, like basically any person. <laughs> yeah, just like being a human, basically. Mock piety. Being easily frightened, confusion of ideas, aversion to girls in boys, but a decided liking for boys in girls? What does that even mean? Oh, it means like boys avoid girls if they're masturbating, but girls like boys if they're masturbating. Oh, okay. Round shoulders, (laughs) weak backs, stiffness of joints, paralysis of the lower extremities, 
unnatural gait, bad positions in bed. I think it's like the way that you sleep. Oh, sleep. Yeah. I was like, okay, what? Lack of breast development in females. Fake news. <laughs> Capricious appetite. Fondness for unnatural or hurtful or irritating articles such as salt, pepper, spices, vinegar, mustard, clay, <laughs> slate pencils, <laughs> plaster, and chalk. I don't know what? where that list comes from. <laughs> what are we to believe we're doing with those things? Like you just like to eat them? You're fond of or... them. If you masturbate, you apparently like flavor and texture. <laughs> I don't if you know. like salt and pepper, it's because you masturbate too much. Yeah. Oh, shit. He put mustard on a sandwich. He's definitely a masturbator. Dude. I don't know. Disgust at simple food, use of tobacco, unnatural paleness, acne or pimples, biting of fingernails, shifty eyes, moist, cool hands, palpitation of the heart, hysteria in females, chlorosis or green sickness, a.k.a. anemia, epileptic fits, bedwetting, and use of obscene words or phrases. According to like 70% of those, I am hella a masturbator. <laughs> yeah, same. I think that describes like most people. Yeah. So you want to know why that describes most people and why the weird thing like hates plain food, hates simple food is in there? Why? Is because Kellogg invented cornflakes in order to ward off masturbation. What? Yep. This is not fake news. Like, for real? That was the goal? This is 100% true history. He and his brother owned health spas. Like, health spas are where you go to, like, exercise and relax and whatever. Mm -hmm. And, like, also heal yourself spiritually. And to be healthy spiritually, you can never masturbate. And to help people with their desires for masturbating or smoking or what the fuck ever, the cure for everything was cornflakes. This what? crusade against masturbation was literally just a marketing ploy to sell more cornflakes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, so, okay, so I'm wondering, kind of like chicken and the egg, did the cornflakes come first and he's like, hmm, how do I market this? Uh, anti-horniness. Or was it like, oh, I hate masturbation. I want to make people. I think the anti-horniness came first. Okay, so, so he designed cornflakes specifically with that goal in mind and then pushed it really hard and then they got popular for some reason and the the horniness thing dropped so those are the weird social rhetoric and also the profiting off of the social rhetoric regarding the shame of masturbation and all of the reasons that you could pick someone out of a crowd as like defiling themselves in mm -hmm. this way mm -hmm. and as far as outcomes of shaming people for it it creates a disconnect with your own body. It lowers your confidence, both just socially and also within romantic relationships. That's true. And then it has further implications of as far as not being able to, like, correctly identify body parts. Mm -hmm. So this is all leading up to whatever parts we've experienced. And much of it was through the church or our parents who are raised in shame-steeped evangelical settings um the last part of that article i want to share with you are the pictures because they are delightful <laughs> um so i'm going to send you this image and i want you to just try and figure out what's happening and react to it with me okay i'm excited what okay it's like a <laughs> it's like a diagram i'm still not entirely sure of what so these are three different devices. These are the <gasps> sketches for their patents. Oh, are these like chastity belts? No. Chastity belts 
were kind of an idea that came from this. And sometimes you'll see them in like antique stores or whatever improperly labeled as chastity belts. These are anti-masturbation devices. What? Yeah. Can you just kind of describe what you see? Like, what does the first one look like? Okay, so, okay, I'm starting to understand them. They're, like, really weird-looking devices, so it -hmm. took me a moment to, like, make sense of them. But the first one, the best way I can describe it is, like, the little baby swings that you can put your legs through. Like, the seat of that. It's, like, hard underwear. Yeah, and there's a little opening in the crotch part so you can still Mm -hmm. pee. There's, like, a, a metal mesh. Yeah, and then it's, like locked around your waist so i guess you can't take it off which is kind of terrifying yep it locks in the back and the parents have the key oof uh the male version kind of the same concept except it's just more like a like a metal loincloth I'm going to I'm going to read you this part. For males, there were similar devices, but most popular were sheaths with metal teeth that fitted over the penis. <gasps> if the penis became erect, the teeth pierced the flesh oh. and made any erection painful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Each new breakthrough in technology seemed to lead to a new kind of device. Appliances that gave electric shocks, for example, came on the market after the development of batteries. Oh my gosh, we love shocking people for deviant behaviors. Yeah. Thankfully, we've moved away from medicalizing masturbation as something evil. Yeah. But socially, there's still a lot of moral panic around it. The last example I have of masturbation, then I will finally stop talking about it, is... The fact that, like, real cancel culture (laughs) happens around this topic, like, a lot of people cry wolf about cancel culture and then they go on and get a book deal or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this happened back in 1994. A surgeon general, which is, you know, the, the USA's top doctor, her name was Jocelyn Elders. She was fired for answering a question at a UN conference about masturbation in children. Okay. She was asked whether masturbation should be encouraged as a way to prevent infectious diseases, which is a pretty common concept. Um, okay. Because if you're masturbating, then you don't have the need to go out and have multiple sexual partners mm-hmm. or whatever, and you're, you're less likely to spread disease. Mm-hmm. She responded... As to your specific question in regard to masturbation, I think that is something that is a part of human sexuality, and it is a part of something that perhaps should be taught. But we've not even taught our children the very basics. I feel that we have tried ignorance for a very long time, and it is time we try education. What do you think of that quote? I was expecting it to be a lot more controversial, but... Right? (laughs) I think it's really well-spoken and sounds very political because it's not, you know, giving any strong opinion one way or another. But she's kind of saying that educating kids about masturbation would be better than just kind of leaving them to figure it out on their own, which also encourages kids to masturbate. Exactly. Uh, I think I wrote under that in all caps, not even that strong of a statement. (laughs) So after that, she was pushed to resign immediately by none other than our most pious and sexually pure President Bill Clinton. Oh, my God. The irony runs real deep. Um, And that's not an isolated incident. The Reagan administration appointed and then quietly ousted a different Surgeon General um, named C. Everett Koop. And they pioneered the public position that we should provide sex education and condoms for teenagers. Mm-hmm. And that was really radical at the time. Mm-hmm. And we, we know it to be really effective now. Right. But that was not acceptable. Young people are going to have a word to describe something that they're already doing and experiencing a lot of confusion about. We can't have that happen. So we've covered masturbation, which is a topic that begins very early in one's life. 
and kind of continues for the rest of it. I think next we should touch the topic that only happens once, and only kind of for girls, and that's the idea of virginity. Ooh. You cannot talk about purity culture without talking about the concept of virginity. Oh, yeah. And the topic is rife, and we don't need to dig all the way to the bottom of that barrel because we don't want to get that dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like it's really mucky, and it's really long, and it's really complicated. And honestly, I don't care that much. (laughs) But there are a lot of things that have affected us throughout our lives because of the importance placed on virginity. That mm-hmm. I think would be really nice to dig into together. Yeah. So what are your off-the-top thoughts when that topic comes up? I immediately think of the church because that's what I was raised with. Um, I was raised Christian. I immediately think of the concept of any sex that happens outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is sexual sin. And this is at least how it was taught to me. Um, it's all kind of the same sin. So whether you're masturbating or whether you're Mm. sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend before you're married, or if you're in a gay relationship, then that is all the same sin, which is sexual sin. Mm -hmm. And some churches take it so far as to say, if you have sex recreationally, like to not get pregnant, like you can keep pushing that even further in some parts of the Christian church, Hmm. Yeah, which is... Crazy. And some parts of the Christian church also push it so far as to say, like, kissing or holding hands before marriage yeah. is breaking virginity. I'm happy that wasn't what was taught to me, but it wasn't uncommon for it to be encouraged to save your first kiss for marriage or for mm-hmm. kids who have, you know, publicly declared that they're saving their first kiss for marriage. I just remember, like, at my school, that was something that people were kind of congratulated for. Like, it was an accomplishment. That's so weird. Yeah, really weird. So it wasn't, like, told to us directly, like, you shouldn't kiss until marriage. But there was kind of a sense of of congratulations when someone did Mm -hmm. decide to do that. Oh, yeah. A lot of ceremonies around, like, promise rings Mm -hmm. and commitments and... um, Purity rings, too. Purity rings. There's a whole culture. Honestly, a lot of people are making a lot of money off of it, Mm -hmm. which is weird. Yeah. So I wanted to share with you something that a friend of mine wanted to share with our podcast for the first time. Like, this is our first little guest recording, which is super exciting. Um, It happened at a dinner party that we held. And she grew up in a Catholic school and Catholic um, church. Mm. So this is some of the metaphors that she was exposed to on the same topic. There were metaphors or images given in the realm of like the Christian church in 90s, 2000s, where a woman needs to make sure that they have purity and that their virginity is protected so that on their wedding night, they give this gift to their spouse. And it was always shown of like, you have to protect this uh, idea of like mint condition, like not opened. As you had relationships with people, if you opened yourself up or were vulnerable or had intimacy, like if you like open the box and like, okay, like you know how you open a box multiple times on Christmas and the edges get a little bent or something. Oh no. And then if you're very involved and maybe you get hurt or there's other things that happen that's like equivalent to the box being stepped on or like you rip the ribbon off and it was always about the woman having to do everything to protect defend and proactively resolve and remove conflict problems damage and whatever but they never did anything about the guys 
they're like, hey, like you need to meet a woman of faith and she is going to serve and respect you and you need to be willing to put your life down and die for her as Christ died for the church and no all these pressure. other images. So no pressure, but it's more of be a strong, good, hardcore, faithful man. They never said anything about like, hey man, keep it in your pants until you meet the right person. <laughs> and we also had other things about, oh no, if you have sex with people, you're losing a little bit of your soul every time because you have this I connection. That too. I learned, that, I learned too. that too. And my first question was like, so what about my Aunt Susie who's had six husbands? They won't answer you. They don't answer. No fucking answer. (laughs) No, it's so true. And like they want the girls like to do promise rings and pledges and commitments. The thing that is so sad is like, okay, if your box is damaged, what if it's not your fault that your box is damaged? Like, what if you were assaulted or Mm -hmm. if there's something else that happened? It's like it's not your fault, and you shouldn't be ashamed that your box has. Which is something that many religions, including certain sects mm-hmm. of Christianity, do believe. Yeah, that's why, like, mm-hmm. blaming women for rape is very convenient if you believe virginity is more important than the woman itself. Thoughts. Also, thank you so much, Andrea, for sharing some of your upbringing and some of your experiences with us. So I love that um, analogy she used of the box being damaged because that is that nails it how <laughs> how we were taught it's kind of like the example that my high school health teacher used was gluing two pieces of construction paper together and then you let it dry for oh, a few no. days and then you try to pull the pieces apart from each other and naturally the little pieces of construction paper like it's not a clean tear it's just messy and it rips and there's pieces stuck to the other piece of paper and Did- did you say health teacher? I say health, but it was actually called human development. But yes, oh, our human God. development class was um, basically the don't have sex class, if I could sum it up. <laughs> ah. You know, don't have sex, but if you have to, use birth control. But that was like the only... Yeah, and it's like, what's birth control? <laughs> exactly. Like, I knew there was a pill. I knew that condoms existed. I had no idea what they looked like or how they worked mm-hmm. or how to put one on. Oh, I still don't know how to put one on. (laughs) Yeah, we never got the condom on the banana demonstration. Did you get Uh, one of those? No, I think we both missed out. Damn. Right? I think the only science-y thing we learned was, like, the anatomy of the female reproductive system. We didn't even touch penises. Couldn't tell you what any of those parts are called. Um, But, yeah, so the way I was taught was very similar to what, what your friend said. And I was raised with the mindset that virginity is a gift for your future spouse Mm -hmm. and if you don't have that gift it's like rude it's like showing up to a birthday party without bringing a present and it's like what is the man giving me (laughs) yeah yeah it's weird it's weird because it's definitely and this i don't know that this was ever said directly but it's definitely something that's the pressure is put much more on young girls than young oh, boys. Absolutely. There's like this weird idea in church culture that once you lose your virginity, you're kind of permanently tainted and impure forever. Mm-hmm. And I think the language behind that is really important. You've you've lost your virginity. You, you've lost something. When you yeah. say that you've lost something, it implies that you can never get it back. Yeah. Like, I lost my mom. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it, that type of language is, is used – with a connotation of permanence. Absolutely. And this mindset is really dangerous. What it does is it creates the opposite effect that the church is trying to have of keeping kids not having sex. 
because once you've lost your virginity, well, then after that, there's no motivation to want to abstain because mm, you no longer point. have that gift to give. So you might as well go hog wild at that point, right? Good point. Not only is it a dangerous mindset just, you know, on an emotional, spiritual level for kids, but it also is doing the exact opposite of what the church is trying to accomplish by encouraging kids to not lose their virginity. Yeah. Yeah. Making it a one-time giant deal instead of instead of framing it in a way it's like we care about you and want you to develop healthy relationships that are fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that Those are two very, very different approaches. And one of them is nice for kids and one of them creates yeah. a lot of unwanted pressure. And I can't tell you how many friends I had who dated a guy or a girl and eventually they had sex despite their best efforts to save it for marriage. And there's kind of like this mindset of, well, now I got to marry this person. Oh my God. Yes. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And it's awful. I mean, it's kind of a subconscious thing of like, okay, well, I lost my virginity to this person. I need to do everything I can to make Mm -hmm. this work. Because I can't admit to the world that I've had sex with more than one person. That's just like the worst thing ever. I've seen that create really dangerous scenarios Mm. where women are forced to stay with their abusers for that reason. Mm -hmm. Or where teenagers are forced to stay in really immature and end up to be toxic relationships because, Mm -hmm. you know, you didn't get to become your own person first. Right. There are just a lot of scenarios in which saying you had sex, therefore you are stuck with this person can create really bad outcomes. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts? It's weird to have levels of impurity, like the box gets damaged versus the box gets stepped Mm -hmm. on versus like all these different things versus the idea of virginity being a binary, like you have it or you don't have it. Yeah. And also the fact that it only applies to women, like it, it specifically refers to whether or not you bleed on your wedding night. Like if you tear the hymen, which is also just like if a girl gets married when she's on her period, can the man even tell? I don't know. It's all kind of a joke. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of moral virtue wrapped up in it that only applies to women. And historically, there's a lot of things we can go into about why that is. Um, I'm not interested in that Mm -hmm. right now because we dealt with enough of the pressure around it, despite being constantly sexualized and constantly being told to be beautiful or be desirous um, and to... You know, it's it's constantly towing the line of, of be pure and be a virgin for your husband versus you're never going to get a man like that. Right. And kind of to piggyback off of the, the box example, it's kind of like you, you mentioned how there's a binary of like you're either a virgin or you're not. And a good way to explain that with the box metaphor is, for example, a car. You buy a car um, new, the second you drive it off the lot, it's considered used and it's suddenly worth way less money, even though it's the same car Hmm. that you just paid far more for, you know, moments ago. Interesting. So the second it loses that status of new, it becomes lesser somehow, even if it's the same exact thing. Yeah. The idea that a man won't be Mm -hmm. interested in a woman's body once another man has had it is disgusting. It's a disgusting concept to push onto a teenage Mm -hmm. girl. It's the literal definition of objectifying because... Yeah. We like objects that are new and unused by other people. Mm. Humans are not objects. So yeah. we shouldn't be talking about those things like they're the same thing. There's not a lot of support offered to kids or teenagers or even young adults as far as sexual education goes in our public school system. And 
there's a lot of pushback from parents when school systems do try to implement sex education. Mm -hmm. And a lot of parents are too embarrassed to take that on with their own children because they were also raised in a culture of shame. Yeah. And breaking that cycle is really difficult. And talking about it is one way to get started. And that's something that I'm getting a lot out of recording this talk with you. Yeah. And in that vein, I wrote down a very formative experience for me that I've actually never written down before. And it's gonna, I mean, I'm like, I'm really excited to share it, but also I, I haven't read it aloud yet. Mm. So I've always wondered, was this actually bad? Um, because I wasn't, I wasn't raped. I wasn't a victim of, of um, physical assault or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty common for when women to complain for it to be compared to to worse cases of right. women complaining. Um, and I've definitely internalized a lot of that. Mm. So I am going to get over that for a second and introduce you to a story with three supporting characters. Okay. <laughs> the scene is a very rural town. Like think of the smallest town you can think of and go down to like 5% of that. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> like the biggest building is the church. Mm -hmm. There's only one stop sign. Oh my it's gosh. Teeny 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 tiny. That's it. Wow. <laughs> like that's that's all there is. Um it's surprising that there's a post office, honestly. Yeah. That's the setting. Enter 14-year-old Lou. Insecure as fuck. Mm. <laughs> Bullied to the point of almost getting held back a grade Aww. because I just couldn't stand school. I would pretend to be sick a lot so I wouldn't have to deal with it. Same here, man. Yeah. I was constantly looking for approval, often romantic because I was always fantasizing to disconnect from reality. Mm. And all of my friends were adults. I'm not really exaggerating here. Mm -hmm. My best friends were my elderly bus driver. I would actually catch the bus half an hour before I had to because it looped back past my house. Mm -hmm. So I would be I would be the first person on the bus by choice at 5.45 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. So I could hang out with my bus driver and Aww. talk about my life. Um, my school counselor, I cried on her lap many times. Uh, There's a couple times when I stayed the night at her home because, you know, we live so far away from school mm -hmm. if I was doing extracurriculars or something. And I have very fond memories of, uh, like, like she made brownies once and let me lick the spoon. Oh, and, that's like, so Just cool. let me feel like a kid. Um, and my church pastor, whom, for the sake of the story, I'm going to call him Peter. Mm -hmm. Pastor Peter was literally my best friend. <laughs> As in, the minute I got a cell phone, his contact name was Best Friend. Aww. And I would text him on my hour-long bus ride because he worked very early. And I would, we would catch up about the latest Christian music, or I would talk to him about being bullied, and he would offer me encouragement or jokes. Yeah, that's and cool. like I said with the the warnings earlier, the story isn't going where you might think it's going. So okay, you can you can rest easy. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I just want to give that little heads up. Cool. Best friend Pastor Peter and his wife Nancy did a lot for me. They would take me school shopping sometimes. We would go on road trips a lot because literally going anywhere was a road trip when you live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like whenever they went into the city, I, I didn't get to go to the city very much, so they would often take me. Oh, that's cool. And I would visit a lot of their extended family with them because I was like a part of it. They would come to my school performances despite it being like almost 100 miles away from where they lived. Wow. And Pastor Peter was into a lot of cool things that I also loved, so we had a lot to bond over. And I also did a lot for the church as a result. In a very, like, typical Baptist church fashion, 
Peter's wife, Nancy, was the youth pastor. I don't know if you experienced a structure like that, mm-hmm. but it's, it's pretty common out where I grew up Yeah, for like both of them to be very involved, you know? Right. Or like the head pastor's son or something. It's common for someone in the family to be the youth pastor. Yeah. It's always in the family. As a result of that, I joined the youth group as soon as I could, and probably earlier than most, because as you can probably gather I was more mature than a lot of my peers and I only really got on with older people or people who were older than myself. Mm -hmm. Many years of feeling like a part of something and like I could make a difference. It was great. Yeah. I led worship band for a little while. I taught people how to play instruments in it. I organized fundraisers. I did dance contests. I did Bible studies and I was basically always there. Wow. So that was a big part of my life. And you know like you know how small the town is. Mm -hmm. That was the only thing. Yeah. It's not like I had other things going on. (laughs) I turn, it was 15 or 16. Things at the church seem off for some reason. Nancy isn't there for like a month and Peter isn't really saying much about it at all, but he seems kind of down. Hmm. And he confides in me that she ran off to Oregon to be with a high school sweetheart of hers. What? She's a bit younger than Peter, but I'm I'm a teenager and I can't discern age differences or Mm -hmm. how big their age gap is. Eventually the church finds out bad. I just wrote bad. (laughs) I remember this next day more clearly than probably anything else in my youth. I was in the locker room around 9 a.m. after another terrible PE class. Mm -hmm. Bright yellow lockers, loud echoes from concrete floors, and awkward nudity. Mm. I get a text from Nancy. I often called her Auntie Nancy, and I was really excited to finally hear from her because I hadn't seen her in like a month. Mm-hmm. And it says, I hope you and your, quote, best friend are happy. I'm glad he has a friend like you because he's going to need one. Whoa. I responded with something like, what? Because obviously. Yeah. What? There's like some shade there, but I don't understand why. Exactly. It was really hard for me to process, especially with my like social awkwardness and what I now know is ADHD. <laughs> Being a kid. Yeah, that too. And sarcastic, awful messages ensued that I've, I've kind of blocked out of my mind. Mm-hmm. I forwarded them to my dad and I asked, like, what is this? What's going on? Can you, like, is this adult? Can you translate? Yeah. He, he texts Nancy directly and she is just as sarcastic and snotty to him, which really throws him for a loop. Mm. She's not back yet, but she does come back for a brief moment, like back to town within the few months. And it's awful. I never really understood because nobody talked about it. But she had accused me of having sex with Pastor Peter (gasps) and pulling him away from her. And somehow the whole church thought the same thing. (gasps) She had left. She had cheated. I was the evil one. Oh my god. This is where you, dear listener and Marie, learn about my strained tie with the concept of childhood innocence. Mm. I hadn't even made out with a boy. I couldn't even say names of genitalia or talk about sex without turning red in the face and wanting to throw up. None of this had happened at all. All of the youth group friends I had clung to so strongly for years after feeling like I had none my whole life distanced themselves from me without saying anything. I didn't know what I did wrong. The brief moment when Nancy did come back and she led some worship services, they were the nail in the coffin for me. It was so full of mockery and disdain, but I was the only one who could see it, and my father to a certain extent since he saw her text too. She eventually leaves and they divorce, but it never comes up. The whole church looks at me differently, but we keep attending. I keep working there, cleaning with my dad on the weekends, leading children's Bible study, planning things for the youth groups. 
Pastor Peter never addresses it. My dad never pushes back on anything or defends me. What the fuck? Introduce our third character. A longtime member of the church, Jeannie. She takes over youth group because obviously Nancy mm-hmm. left. And so I have a new adult figure to latch onto finally. Yeah. <laughs> Keep in mind from my introductory episode, I, I was really distant mm-hmm. from my mother. And that primed me to attach to any and all maternal figures and put way too much pressure on that relationship to fill Mm -hmm. that void that I felt Mm -hmm. as a teen. So I'm like, yes, (laughs) after being super hurt. So she takes me under her wing and I do everything I can to make taking over the youth group leadership smooth and easy. She plans a surprise high school graduation party for me. And I find out after I left for college that she was the one telling Nancy I was doing sexually (gasps) evil things with Pastor Pete. What the fuck? It was the two women that I clung to the most who threw me under a bus that I didn't even know existed. No one ever said anything to me, just about me. I was ostracized in a church that my family insisted on continuing (gasps) to attend. No one ever stood up and called it out. The... Continuation of life as usual gaslit me for years. Yeah, oh my god. It, this is over 10 years ago. My dad just called me a month ago to ask if that to ask if anything sexual happened between me and Pastor oh Peter. Oh my fuck. Like he needed me to confirm it. Over 10 years what later. What the fuck? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. After that, I decided sexual purity was bullshit. And I, quote-unquote, lost my virginity in the back of my car on prom night. Mm. Plenty of promiscuity ensued with anyone who would give me any sort of attention, which led to an awful senior year, leading to full-on sexual harassment. Wow. I lost myself because I was taught the only valuable part, the only precious part of me was my sexual purity. And I learned from the very same people who taught me that, that it wasn't even a real thing. It could just be talked about, and that mattered far more than the actual truth of virginity. Mm. The idea of my virginity mattered more than I actually did as a person. It's taken years to revisit those moments and not see myself as responsible or full of guilt and blame and shame and all the things that I was taught to associate with it. And it's hard to see the people that you cling to as protectors and guardians perpetuating harm or turning a blind eye. A different take on what about sex is or isn't sacred might have created a different outcome for me. Mm. That's all I wrote. And I'm just going to start rambling because awkward silence after sharing something like that is really (laughs) difficult. (laughs) Well, I have a lot of thoughts. First of all, I want to say that is irrefutably bad. Like, it makes me so sad and frankly angry that you even had to doubt for a second that what happened to you was bad because that like I was almost crying just listening to you talk it's that's not okay and oh wow 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 the fact that it was Jeannie who was telling Nancy oh Jeannie like what the actual fuck and she was always really dramatic like it shouldn't have been that surprising Mm -hmm. but she was so fucking nice to me she was so nice wow. to me. She was always really weird whenever Pastor Pete was around. She would, like, give him the side eye. And I, I think Jeannie was abused as a child, actually, like, by an older man. And so she might have had a protective impulse. And I've come around to forgive mm-hmm. these people. Well, that's really mature of you. I've come around to forgive the women who, like, had a direct hand in it because I, I hate having distance with, like, maternal mm-hmm. figures. But I haven't come around to forgive 
Pastor Peter and my dad. Mm. And that's really fucking hard. I didn't even see them as part of the equation until maybe a year ago. After finally being able to share this in therapy, my therapist really astutely pointed out, and nobody stood up for you. Yeah. And you kept going. Yeah, that that really shocked me as well. And it never came up in sermons. Like, the, the pastor never said anything straight, never said, okay, church, we have some things to clear up. My dad never said, fuck you guys, we're leaving. Yeah. Like, they, yeah, the women were the ones that hurt me, but the men were the ones that made me think it wasn't bad or that made me think it, it wasn't mm. real, which is almost worse. That you didn't have a right to feel upset about it. Yeah, or like... Just that it didn't even exist at all. Wow. Yeah. So did your dad not, at the time, did your dad acknowledge that those rumors were going around or did he just completely act like it wasn't happening? Oh my God. I don't even know. He would acknowledge it sometimes. It's really hard for me to know what was going on in his head and I'm not going to assume to know. Yeah. But that's valid. The fact that he called me just like just this year and, and asked me. I need to know, did anything happen between you and this person or you and this person? Wow. My only response was, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, we've been over this. The answer is obviously no. And then I asked, like, why are you asking this? He wanted me to confirm that he did a good job parenting me. Oh, yeah. That feels familiar. Why would you ask me something like that? Why would you ask it like that? <laughs> I can't think of a more shameful way to ask someone. Right. And and the biggest thing is if he's really worried about you potentially having been abused, the time to worry about that was when it was happening. Yeah, it was over 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's not, did something happen between you two? It, the question would be, did he rape you? Because yeah, did he abuse a you? minor cannot consent to an adult. That is not how it Thank works. Thank you. Yeah, and no one abandoned Pastor Peter. It was me. I was at fault. The the teenage girl. <laughs> oh my yeah, god. There's some it's rife. It's rife. <laughs> wow. So to me it says one of two things. Either A, no one in the church actually believed that and they were just putting you through this misery for some fucking I don't know, shenanigans to entertain themselves. Or B, they did believe it. And the purity culture and, you know, sexism was so rife within that church that they genuinely felt it was your fault as the woman for having led the pastor into temptation, even though mm-hmm. you were the child. Yeah. He and that was just adult, a given. We didn't need to talk about it because it's understood. Uh, he is the adult. And the adult in, in any adult-child relationship has the responsibility in all scenarios. You have the responsibility to make sure that your relationship's appropriate and that you're the more mature person. The adult should always carry that responsibility. It should yeah. never be a burden that the child carries. And I think I didn't, I didn't think I had to attribute any of this pain to Pastor Peter because at the time— we, we did have that relationship. He did look out mm-hmm. for me. Like, we were close friends. I mean, I, I one of my many jobs in high school was tutoring, and I would, like, he would let me use his house to tutor kids at because, you know, it was actually in town. Mm-hmm. Or I, we growing up didn't have internet, and I used, I, like, went to his house to apply to college. Like, oh I, gosh. we were close friends still after that. Like, we did help each other get through some of that, but we never fucking talked about it. And we still haven't. And he's gone a lot more, I don't know, conspiracy theory-ish in recent (laughs) years. And so I'm just, you know, I haven't even pursued that relationship at all. Like that friendship has just kind of fallen to the wayside, which is fine. But again, it wasn't until just like 
a couple of years ago that I realized like the men hurt me just as much, if not more. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I do want to establish like I wasn't abused, which is great. <laughs> like I am very grateful that I am not one of the thousands and thousands and thousands of women who have been sexually abused as a minor. That is very common. I'm I'm glad it didn't happen to me within my church, even though it happens to a lot of people. But it still yeah. really fucking hurt. Yeah. And it led to Jeez. a lot of bad outcomes later because of my relationship with sex after that became a total fucking wreck. Yeah, that was that was gonna be my next question was so you mentioned that after that all went down, you were just kind of like, fuck it, and then started sleeping with boys. So do you think that period for you of of kind of experimenting sexually would have happened at the same time that it happened if you didn't have that experience with Peter? No, I think it would have happened a lot later, mm. if anything. Um, would you have preferred it to happen later or were you okay with the age at which it happened? I don't know, honestly. I know people lose their virginity at much younger ages than I did, mm-hmm. but I... I wish I had more of a say in it. I wish that I didn't mm-hmm. just, I, I felt like I was pushed into a spiral that I, I had no control over. I felt like I had to, I think I did it because I, I didn't feel like I had control over anything else. So it's like, fine, yeah. I'm going to choose what I do with my body instead. And that right. was the only control I had. And I wish I would have had more of a choice <laughs> in the yeah. timing of it. And I can imagine it feeling like, oh, well, if I'm going to be accused of this sexual immorality anyways, then I might as well see what it's all about. Have you ever seen the movie Easy A? No. You should watch it. That's with, like, Emma Stone, right? First of all, I love Emma Stone, but also I really identify with that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's that's my story with sexual purity and innocence, and that's kind of the the monologue I wanted to use to tie all of these concepts together Mm -hmm. because I very physically experienced just how false it is and how it falls apart as soon as you poke at it Mm -hmm. and how incredibly damaging it can be. Yeah. Not just within a church structure, but in general. (laughs) I think we see it a lot within church structures because they talk about virginity more. It's interesting because the whole argument behind purity culture is that we need to protect the children and that our main concern is the well-being of children, but your story and so many other similar stories show very clearly that this this mindset of purity culture can actually have really negative outcomes for children, and it's actually doing the opposite of what we're intending. It's making kids potentially more sexually curious, and mm-hmm. it's creating scenarios in which kids might experience sex for the first time in a way that's unsafe. Absolutely. That is extremely dangerous. It ties into abstinent-only sex ed, Mm -hmm. which is what my school was. Which is Um, a huge part of American education. Yeah. Did you get a normal sex education in high school? I don't remember if I did or not. I probably blacked out the whole thing because I was so sexually embarrassed by that time. So, like, it really doesn't matter if you go through really liberal sex education as a teenager. If you've been taught your whole life to be super ashamed of it, you're not even going to absorb any of that knowledge. So it really does mean setting up a a level of confidence and security within one's own body from birth, from very young childhood. And that I see that as a responsibility of a parent. And mm. I, I know we typically don't try to use the show to be like, this is how you should parent. But like, I do strongly suggest that you analyze the things that you are ashamed of 
and whether or not you actually want to pass that on to your children, if it's doing your kids any favors or if it's just because you're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is, I think, what these two episodes wrap up into is the things that we push upon children and teenagers and a lot of just family structures in general aren't for the sake of what we say they are. They're because we don't want to be uncomfortable ourselves. Mm -hmm. So you just brought up abstinence-only sex ed, and I didn't take any notes on that. But I think you have a lot to share about it. So if you have any thoughts on that to drop, do so now or forever hold your peace. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about abstinence-only sex ed because it is what I received in high school. And um, I think I ascribed to that mindset. But now that I'm older, looking back on it, there are a lot of things I wish I would have learned in school. For example, my teacher, kind of her logic was the only safe sex is to not have sex. The only way you can be 100% certain that you're not going to have an unwanted pregnancy or that you're not going to oh, get no. an STD is to just not have sex. Oh, boy. While that logic is true. <laughs> Technically true. The worst kind of true. <laughs> it doesn't take into account that sex is fun and pleasurable and that it's really hard for teenagers to resist that temptation. So then when teenagers inevitably do have sex, despite you just saying, hey, don't do that, <laughs> as teenagers yeah, do. I mean, that goes back to kids experience masturbation and orgasms a lot younger than we think because it yeah. feels good. Like that is a huge component yeah. of it. So when kids inevitably do do it, they're completely unequipped mm -hmm. for having sex for the first time. And all it does is create a higher likelihood of those things you're trying to protect the kids from, which is, you know, mostly unwanted pregnancies and STDs. You're, you're creating a scenario in which they're more likely to experience those things because you haven't taught them how to protect themselves against it. Can we also hedge our bets? Like the only reason that we teach abstinence is, yeah, one, because of a puritanical history or whatever, but it's also because, like, adults really don't want to think about teenagers having sex. Right. The idea of teaching safe sex means we have to admit that it happens. And, again, going back to the same point I just made and the same point of these two episodes, that's not to protect the teenagers. That's to make adults feel more comfortable. Right. Because the teenagers are going to do what they're going to do, regardless of what you tell them. I mean, yeah, there, there are a billion reasons to have sex. Yeah. There are good and bad reasons and whatever reasons to have sex. That's no excuse to, to not equip someone, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, there are good and bad reasons to drive a car. We still teach people how to drive. Right. It has been shown time and time and time again that when sex education increases, like showing kids how to use birth control or just teaching them the various types of birth control or what STDs are, rates of teen pregnancy and STDs go down. This is something that we know. So it's nice in theory to teach kids, well, just don't have sex. It's the only way to stay yeah. safe. You're not taking into account that it's likely to happen anyways. And when it does, when and if it does, that child is now wildly unprepared for the world that's out there. Yep. So I wanted to wrap up since we, we just kind of piled all those topics on top of each other and the pieces fell into the slots where they fit. Um, but I didn't do any same hair man questions last week. So I got a bunch of them for you to make up for it. Ooh, cool. In this game, I will share something that I remember from my childhood. And Marie will say if it's a same hair man or, or nah, she can't relate. Hit me with it. I don't remember not being able to read. Hmm. I think that's... I can't relate. Hmm. Like, do you remember learning reading? 
Yes. I remember mm. learning it in kindergarten, and the first word I learned how to spell was the. Aw. I don't remember learning. I just, like, was a very natural reader. So I'm always mm. interested to see if other people have the same experience. That's really interesting. So you just kind of, like... My brain just clicked as soon as I started learning, yeah, and I don't remember the process. I just... It just made sense. Wow. Some people do. Some people don't. <laughs> hmm. Uh, my next one, I remember my first nightmare. Same here, man, actually. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I won't go into it, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. Um, my parents made me drink milk. Same here, man. <laughs> it's good for your bones. Right? Thanks, yeah. dairy industry lobbies. It's all fake. <laughs> to be fair, I liked milk, but we were definitely too. a fat-free family. Were you guys Gross. a fat-free family? We were like a 2%. Oh, you were 2 percenters? I'm just kidding. <laughs> because I was raised on the fat-free, anytime I drink 2%, I'm like, ooh, this tastes like rotten to me because it's like too <gasps> flavorful. No. Whole milk's probably the worst thing ever to you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, no. I don't drink milk anymore, so it's like kind of not relevant. But yeah, I remember feeling that way that as a kid. That makes sense. Well, yeah, because fat-free milk is like water. All right, next one. When I learned how to spell my name, I wrote it on literally everything. I don't remember doing that. I think that might be can't relate, but that's adorable. Oh, yeah. No, it was awful. Like, I got a hold of a Sharpie and bam, all of my toys have my name <laughs> on it. All right. Next one. I used to lie compulsively to avoid what I saw as trouble. Mm, I think that's a can't relate. Like I said, the only blatantly disobedient thing I remember doing is sneaking Halloween candy. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of stretching the truth without having to say an actual mm. lie. And then it's like, if you <laughs> misunderstand me, that's your problem. That's but, great. Or that was my child mindset, I Such guess. Such a lawyer. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I don't I don't recall ever like blatantly lying. Oh, I had a phase where, like, I, I almost couldn't tell the truth because I was always afraid of getting in trouble. It caused a really big rift between my dad and I for a while because I just I, – I always lied because I was always afraid. So what kinds of things were you lying about? Were Literally you, like, everything. Like, <laughs> who broke that? Who ate this? Who did this? Oh. I mean, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I just lied about literally everything. Um, the next one, my parents believed in corporal punishment, like spanking. Same here, man. Yeah. I was spanked many a time. Same. And I never remember what I was spanked for. I just remember being hit. Yeah. We'll do a whole episode on that later because it's a really complicated topic. Yeah. I just remember like being sp like a couple times I was spanked. I like genuinely was confused on what I had done wrong. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I feel like, it, you know, I'm not here to tell people how to parent, but Whatever you're doing as a punishment, at the very least, make sure your kids understand why they're being punished. I think that's super important. I agree with that. Because if they don't get why they're being punished, then it's all for nothing. It's just going to cause a rift. Yeah. Yeah. You're just causing pain without any lesson. Anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, I planned my own or siblings' birthday parties. Hmm. Can't relate. My mom was a big party planner. Oh so my. <laughs> but you had to plan your own? Oh, yeah. So, like, you just wouldn't have, like, a birthday party if you didn't, you know, coordinate it all yourself? Um, I don't know. I always did. <laughs> wow. It always seemed like no one else was interested. Like, my parents kind of couldn't be bothered. Yeah. That's adorable, but also sad. I really cared about my siblings' childhoods, so I, I really did try. Christmas was a big thing. I always tried to, like, instill traditions or whatever. Aw. Yeah. I liked to plan things. And my last one, I still don't understand the phrase, I'm laughing with you, not at you. Mm. I heard that a lot as a kid, and I still don't get it. 
Yeah. It's like a half and half, same here, man, can't relate, <laughs> because I understand what people think they're saying when they say that, but to me, it's one thing, you know? Laughing at me and with me feels the same to me. It's like, I, I get what you're going for, but I don't feel it. I don't get it, so good for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for playing. Uh, you, too, can play by sending in your questions and or short stories to samehearemanpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at samehearemanpod. That's it for today's episode. So uh, until next time, go put a condom on a banana. And go eat some cornflakes. <laughs> man i was gonna masturbate today but i just had cornflakes so 